Welcome to Growing Your Financial Advisor Practice Podcast by Snap Projections, episode 32. I'm your host, Pavel Braminski, and my goal is to interview experts to provide you with insights, strategies, and actionable tactics that you can start applying to grow your financial advisory practice today. For more information, head over to snapprojections.com slash podcast. Now, let me introduce today's guest. Today's guest is Greg Hillman. Greg is the president of Value Partners Investments, named one of Canada's fastest growing companies by Profit Magazine. By investing wisely, Value Partners have created over $820 million in investment gains for families across Canada. Far from out-of-touch corporate executive, Greg works side-by-side with clients to grow their wealth and make sure they have enough money to fund their retirement. As an advisor to high net worth families, an investor, an entrepreneur, a husband, and a father, Greg has a proven ability to build wealth and a deep understanding of how it goes wrong for so many families. Greg, welcome to the show. Thanks, Pavel. Happy to be here. This is exciting for me. Excellent. So I'm really excited as well. And I think this is going to be a real treat for listeners. So let's jump right in. So let's start where pretty much everybody starts. Tell me about your firm. So what do you typically do? Who do you typically serve? Well, our firm is actually a really interesting one in that we're Canada's only investment firm that's owned by independent financial planners across Canada. And so we actually have a mutual fund dealer. We actually have an investment counselor and an investment funds company all together. So the whole objective is we believe that Canadians need financial planning advice, and then they need the investment recommendation to tie directly to that financial plan. And we think that this structure of investment managers working side by side, outstanding financial planners gives us the best shot at helping the client reach their goals. And whether that's somebody with $100,000 and they're in funds, or whether that's somebody with $10 million and they are in separately managed accounts, the point is they have a plan and they have a clear investment recommendation designed to meet that plan. And the other thing that's really fascinating about it is all of us are owners of the company, the portfolio managers, the financial advisors, all the staff. And so our interest is in the long-term success of the client. If the clients stay with us, the firm grows, all of us benefit as, as owners. And the other piece is when you actually look at the importance of client communication, one of the things we find so lacking in this industry is do a plan, I need you know, $80,000 a year of after-tax income. And then the portfolio recommendation is this basket of funds. And then a fund does well and they add more to it and a fund does poorly and they go, oh, let's get rid of that one. And they then they switch it out as opposed to actually saying, well, you know, are we getting that income from sustainable sources? If the share price is down, is it down because the business is suffering or is it down because of sentiment and the business is thriving? Having portfolio managers side by side at the table as business partners with the advisor and the client allows us to say, for example, if a share price goes down, they can actually talk directly to the client and say whether or not we need to make a change, not based on is the fund good or bad, or we used to be five stars and now it's one star. Is the shares, the the company itself undervalued? Is it executing on its business plan? If so, then maybe we should be adding more to it. And so that combination of all of us working together side by side to serve the plan, we have found we've been able to have a much higher retention rate. We've been able to get clients to invest more when their portfolios go down. And we've been able to help a lot more families achieve the objectives later 
laid out in the plan. So I know that's a long-winded answer, but it's a it's a very unique business. There's no other company in Canada like it. That's really interesting. So I have to ask a follow-up question. So what really was what inspiration into that? Because I, if I remember, I think Vanguard has a really interesting structure when it's Vanguard, I think it's owned by the funds. That's right. So was this part of the inspiration for you? Or like, how did you arrive at this unique structure? Because it is truly unique. So the company was founded by Jim Lawton, who has been an independent financial advisor for the last 40 years based here in Winnipeg. He's now you know, finished his succession plan. His son, Sean, has taken over his practice. But his partners here in Winnipeg, the Lawton Partners Financial Planning Group, they were some of the earliest champions of tying together a disciplined financial planning process with an investment strategy. And so Jim, this was his, uh, he founded the company. He built the team and brought us in 15 years ago to execute on his vision, which was, as I said, portfolio managers working side by side with planners to execute that plan and uh, also to follow the same investment process that wealthy people have always followed, which is own good businesses that grow their earnings and grow their dividends over time. It really was Jim's idea. We've simply been trying to execute on that to the best of our ability for the last 15 years. And execution is really the where the real challenge is, right? So That's right. So you were saying simply, we're simply executing, you're actually doing the hard work, but you're very modest. Okay, so let's talk about a little bit of our firm from the high-level structure, the stats. You know, What is the number of staff right now, if you could share? You know, what is the number of clients, maybe the assets under management at this point? So the listeners have a little bit of context. Sure. So context would be 51 staff and three billion dollars in assets under management and in terms of clients that's a a little trickier our best guess would be somewhere around 8,000 clients across Canada from Vancouver Island to Newfoundland. Excellent. Okay, thank you. You really explained a lot also that I typically, I typically ask, you know, why does this business exist? You know, why does this work matter? You really explain a lot. But just for you, like from your perspective, president of the company, why do you think this business does exist? Like what is the core for you? Why does this work matter for you? That's sort of the foundation of it all. So for us, we fundamentally believe that the financial decisions that people make in their lives should reflect their values. It should reflect who they are and what they're trying to accomplish. And overwhelmingly, you know, we just see everywhere we look, we see people where that's not the case. And so for us, we really, our mission is to build client wealth. The reason that we chose that as the, the mission is because if you, you know, if you say we want to change people's lives, you have to say specifically how you're going to change their lives. And we think we are going to change their lives by helping them make the, the most of their life's work. And that is then taking, you know, their paychecks, putting some money away, and then making the absolute best use of that those savings. So that's why we exist as a firm and we're relentless in measuring it. We're relentless in trying to figure out how else we can make life better for the people that have entrusted their life savings to us. Excellent. So if you could take me back to your early days, I'm always curious, you know, why this is the career that you've chosen to pursue? Like what made you to become an advisor in the first place? That's a challenging question, but at its core, I grew up, my father was an entrepreneur. I was very fortunate to spend time with a lot of successful people when I was a kid. And those people make decisions and they think differently than most Canadians. And I guess it was it was always something I aspired to was to be an entrepreneur myself. 
I think it's the the most certain way to build your wealth is to be an owner of a business that is thriving and successful. And of course, there's risk in that. And of course, there is an obligation in that to the staff and to the clients. If you're going to start your own company, you have to you have to be better than everybody else. But it is the biggest way to make a meaningful difference is to have your own business where you can build wealth for your family by helping others live a better life. So when then as I progressed along, you know, as I've made that realization that a lot of wealthy people conducted their affairs very differently than everybody else, I ended up, you know, my studies took me to a master's in business admin. I worked for the largest privately owned company in the world, Cargill International, which is owned still by the Cargill and the McMillan families. And again, I was exposed to these wealthy families making decisions to build wealth in a way that was very different than how most Canadians were approaching their financial affairs. And I thought, you know what, this is an area where we can really help. And thankfully, I met Jim and his business partners about 18 years ago now, and they have now, I'll say, changed my life. I owe them a debt of gratitude I can never repay because they really taught me what this industry should look like at its best. Excellent. In your introduction, I, I mentioned in your bio that you have the understanding of you know what goes wrong with building wealth for so many families. So I want to I want to go back to that one because is this really what you just said earlier that wealthy people think differently than most, right? And there is you know very few of wealthy people, of course, majority people are not wealthy. But can you tell me a little bit more? Like what typically do you see? What goes wrong? And 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 then hopefully we can dive into your process from that. Well. So, okay, now uh, I I run the risk here of not sounding very much like a financial advisor, but this is sort of the way I view a lot of things through my own personal life experience. And, you know, when you actually think about how it goes wrong, it actually has nothing to do quite often with financial advice. You think about health events, you think about people not taking care of their health, you think about people not taking care of their marriage or their relationships with their children. My personal belief is that uh, the money is only worth anything to you if you have your health and you have people to share life experiences with. So, you know, for me, I'm a little bit a little bit strange in that I want to spend my time with people that get it at the big level, that look after their health, that eat well, that get exercise, that have healthy relationships with their community, with their children, with their spouses, because then the money has meaning, right? It can actually deliver happiness. And conversely, I found it's very challenging to advise people on financial affairs that don't have those other things in place. They're not settled in their own personal life. They're not happy. And it becomes challenging to be a trusted advisor and a valued advisor to somebody that's not happy and doesn't have the ability to think about the future in an optimistic way. So I know there's a lot of wealthy people out there who I know wouldn't be a good fit for me. And so when I think about where it goes wrong, that's the first place it goes wrong. Has nothing to do with money, has to do with people that aren't happy and don't have their personal life in a good place. But then when you get into that situation and you're dealing with people, where does it go wrong? Well, a lot of times it goes wrong with, so even healthy people have health events. So when we think about the process, the process starts always in my, in my view, it starts with what can go wrong. Starts with, you know, in for young people, this disability or critical illness, and obviously death, even though it's a much lower probability outcome. If there is financially devastating consequences to a health event, then the process starts with identifying that and protecting people against that. Then it moves 
moves on to, you know, maximizing your after-tax cash flow. So looking at are there opportunities to structure the affairs in a tax-efficient way. Then it moves on to, okay, so if we've mass, we've optimized that, now what is left over in terms of their savings? And of course, if people cannot save money, then we have very little value to add. And so then it gets into maximizing their savings in the context of their goal. So now you get to a point where somebody has excess cash each year coming in. Now we get into an interesting conversation about what is the most effective use of that capital? Is it to put it back into your own business or to start a business? Or is it now to take that capital and use it to acquire an ownership stake in businesses that are growing their profits and their dividends? And you know, this is a this is where I focus most of my time, and I think where our team on the investment management side focuses most of their attention. If you look at all of the wealthiest people in the world, they are all business owners. And again, you know, I started my career with the Richardson family in Winnipeg, James Richardson International, then to Cargill. These are some of the wealthiest families in the world. And but even in any community, if you if you look at who has all the wealth, it's the people that own the profitable businesses in that community. And take it a step further, if you actually look at the stock market, the top 1% of the population in North America own 50% of the publicly traded securities. The next 9% own 40% of the publicly traded securities. So what you're you're looking at is 90% of the population in North America owns now 10% of the publicly traded securities. So the means to wealth creation is through business ownership, ownership of profitable, thriving, growing businesses. And that is a huge focus for us. We view our job as to if they're saving $20,000 a year or $100,000 or $10,000, we want to concentrate that money and have them continue to build an ownership stake in a handful of great businesses. And so the whole conversation comes back to having a business owner mentality, not view yourself as a stock trader, not that you own a basket of mutual funds and you have some growth and GARP and value. None of that. It is embracing an ownership mentality, identify some businesses you feel comfortable owning for the next 20 years, buy more when they go down, participate fully in the profits that they generate. And so if you think about that process, identifying risk, minimizing tax, then maximizing your returns, in the context of a plan. So if you can map out for somebody that they need, you know, $80,000 a year after tax starting at age 65, it's then, then the rest of it's simple math. How much do you need to put away? What does it need to grow at? And what investments could deliver that growth in the most risk efficient manner? It's hard for me to get into the details without drawing it out because if you were sitting beside me, I would be drawing this out for you in what we call the infinite wealth process. But those are the key building blocks. And then the last piece is, you know, to have the really fun conversation, which is, you know, we don't plan to have any of our clients die penniless and spend their last penny on the day they pass away. We build, you know, what we would consider robustness into the plan. We're building it so that the money lasts beyond them. And at some point, 
you know, that gets to the fun conversation about either telling them they can spend more or telling them they can give away more or telling them about, you know, private foundations or thinking about how now they, again, they best represent their values of who they are as a human in their financial decisions. That all makes sense. And I would have to say that this is a really refreshing perspective, right? Because your concept of really focusing on the on the cash or really the excess cash, what can you do with that? I mean, you can, you know, it's either saving money or really, as you said earlier, acquiring cash, generating essentially assets, right? Or uh, or businesses, as you said, right? So right. this is really interesting. So let's maybe get to some of those details because let's say you, you just said, if we're just sitting together in the same room, you will be starting drawing things. So am I right to suspect that the major, I think a big element of you working with clients is really educating them on the philosophy, right? And then very quickly, you said, if we don't have the same approach to, to wealth management and thinking about money, I mean, maybe even though you have money, maybe you're not going to be a good fit for me. But let's say how you're going to basically, let's say if I was going to become your client, how would you take me through the process? Let's say here was the first meeting, second meeting, what would you do first? What would you do second? And how would you structure this relationship? Sure. So there's two things that, that we focus on right at the beginning. One is trying to get an understanding of your net worth and your cash flow. And the other thing is to try and understand how you are investing your money today. And from that, we will then look at it in the context of, so for example, you can quickly determine whether someone has far more wealth than they will ever be able to spend, or you can quickly determine whether or not they have lots of excess cash. For example, you have a dentist and they're generating tons of excess cash, but they're spending a lot. And you look and you say, well, you know, are they ever going to be able to, at the rate they're saving, they might be saving $30,000 a year. But if they're spending $400,000 a year, it's going to be very challenging for them to ever amass enough wealth to be able to actually maintain that sort of same spending level in retirement. And so you can very quickly, by looking at a net worth and looking at a cash flow statement and looking at their investment accounts, ascertain, okay, what's going on here? And so that that first meeting is really a fit process meeting in terms of us going through how we think about it and them, you know, trying to determine, are we the kind of people that could help guide them in a better way? And then if that leads to a second meeting, then the second meeting is to say, okay, this is what we see. Does that make sense to you? This is what we see when we look at your net worth, how it's evolving, your cash flow, your in, how you're investing today. We see these issues. We see the fact that you might be on track to fall significantly short. Are you okay with that? What do you think about that? Had you ever realized that? And, you know, some the best clients are completely honest. And by the way, the best clients, typically we're not telling them anything they don't already know. It's whether or not they actually, you know, are prepared to say, you know what, you're right. I've known this and now we got to do something about it. So what's the plan? Or, and there's other people that just say, yeah, but you know what, I'm not changing. And so that that decision, that second meeting tends to go one of two ways. Either they lean in or they lean out. Right. The other thing is you said it's an education meeting. You know what, in my experience, there is not that much education. In fact, if anything, I spend, I, I think that our team and the advisors that work at Value Partners and that we partner with, it really is about, you know, speaking to them about principles that they already know. So for example, you know, you get somebody that owns a very successful trucking company and they they know their margin structure inside and out. They know their revenues, they know their expenses, they know their overhead, they know their margins. 
And then you look at their portfolio and they'll have, you know, could be 10 ETFs. It could be mutual funds, could be closed end funds, could be new issues, could be stocks, could be bonds. And you look and you go, okay, help me understand what you own here, why you own it, and now put it in the context of your own business. So so let's pick one of these businesses. You Can you tell me about the margin structure? Can you tell me about their balance sheet or anything about it? And what you find is they often, some of the wealthiest people that you'll meet, they have no idea what's in their investment account. They have no idea how it's performed. They have no idea. And, and so really it's not educating. It's actually pointing out inconsistencies between how they've lived their life to get where they are and what they're actually doing with the money that they pull out of that business. And we found that that is a always a very, that's a conversation where people tend to lean in. Right. This is fascinating. Wow. Okay. Excellent. And where do we go from there? So let's say we have a successful business owner. Uh, they understand every single bit of detail about their business, but they really have not really paid probably attention to their investment in investments and really financial planning. So how do you take them through your process then? So let's say you have a good fit, you have a client that you feel you can add value to and they feel, yes, we really understand your philosophy, we would like to work with you. How do we make it work? How do we actually start working together? So there are, as I said, two sides of the business. We have the investment council business, and then we have the mutual fund side. So if it's with an advisor where they're mutual funds licensed, then that process would be on that platform we would have a transition plan. So the next step for us is the transition plan where you look at their investment accounts and you know they might have many clients would have five accounts, but I'm actually repeatedly surprised at how many people have eight or nine or 10 or 12 different investment accounts. And they've changed their advisors. They've you know transferred in liras. They've ended up you know working for different companies and getting small little pension payouts. And they end up with twelve accounts. And so there needs to be a detailed transition plan, whether they're on the mutual fund platform or the investment council platform. And the detailed transition plan is we're going to take these eight accounts and we're going to now end up at the end with five accounts. We're also going to take your current asset allocation and their current number of holdings, which might be a thousand or two thousand or whatever it is, and we're going to transition that into this portfolio that has you know thirty companies. And so we show them a, a very clear map that has where you are today, the number of accounts, what's in each account, and then when we're done transitioning, you're going to end up with these accounts holding these securities. And it always needs to come back to meeting that principle of the best portfolios should be clearly aligned with their objective. They should be simple, easy to understand, easy to measure, and fully transparent about what's in there. So now, once you have the transition plan, the client says, that makes sense to me. I see how that would be simpler, more aligned with my objectives and gives you the go ahead then you just then you have the account opening documents and the transfer forms and the process goes from there then you know from there we have a whole client service model that starts there because once a client says okay i'm going to place my faith in you i'm going to place my life savings in your hands what we have found is now it's easy to say yes to a new idea and to somebody that has clearly laid out a better path forward 
there's still that, oh my word, that, that gut check of moving all of my money to a new firm. And so we've really found that you have to keep them in the loop the whole way. So when the accounts open, we send out a note saying, you know, again, thank you for the trust you've placed in us. Welcome. Your first account has just been opened. And then as money settles, we give them regular updates as the money, as the transfers are settling. Once the portfolio is now all at Value Partners and built, then we set up a review meeting to go over their new statement and walk them through it. And now you've properly got them to a point where we've executed the transition plan, you've welcomed them to the firm, and you've given them their first review where you've walked them through each of the securities and and given them some reason why we believe this portfolio is going to help them achieve their goals. Excellent. Makes sense. So, and in terms of the, the financial planning process, you know, investment planning is really part of the financial planning process. So it's, are you going through different elements of the financial planning process during different meetings, or do you have just one financial plan that basically drives this all and the investment planning is part of it? How do you structure really this internally with clients? Yeah, great point. So all of that, I'm, yeah, I've been focusing really on the investment side of it, but it, it all has to fit together. We don't get to the investment side until we know what the goals are, where we've got the, the year by year projections for net worth, for cash flow, and we've done an insurance analysis. And again, I'm not involved in in that. I'm brought in typically, well, can be brought in at the beginning of the process or can be brought in at the end of the process can be brought in at multiple places, but somebody on the team is making sure that those projections are done. And one of our advisors is typically then doing the insurance analysis and and looking at the estate side of things as well. So the objective, so the only thing I'd add is at the end of it, the client needs to have the entire picture. Right. They might start with the pain point might be, oh, wow, like I'm not pleased with my service or I'm not pleased with my investment returns or I'm not pleased with the level of transparency or the fees, the reason that somebody would choose to seek a second opinion is different all the time. But ultimately, at the end of it, you have to end up with the entire plan done and all of the different pieces having been considered. Perfect. That makes absolute sense. And really, I want to underline what you said that right now, because you said that you're not getting to investment side until the plan is created, until the goals are known. And this is a profound difference that we see, for example, in you know other wealth management uh, companies, where really investments are you know sort of the center of the relationship and financial planning really is yes we do financial planning but it's really used as a checkbox it's just you know sometimes it's even a lip service yes we do financial planning but the moment financial plan is created is actually put on shelf it's collecting dust it's you know the, the focus on investments really is is right there and uh, the financial planning process is, is not really followed and what you're saying here and you mentioned this earlier you have a disciplined financial planning process you are actually starting with a plan you have their goals in place and then we will get to investments, but this is not the first thing that we're going to be focused on. So I'm glad that, that you said that. So, Well, let me pick up on that. I just want to drive the point home. So I could make the argument that you should not be investing anybody's money until you understand specifically what the money is intended for. And that is my belief. I have seen clients for whom they take enormous risk in their operating company. For example, we have some corporate farms as clients and they take huge risk year to year. There's huge variability in cash flow. In a perfect world, they would buy more farmland if the right land came available. You could make the argument that an appropriate portfolio is 100% cash. That may be, but it's a discussion about what you want the cash to do. And it's a discussion about uh, 
what their goals are and how they see the next 10 years of their life playing out. At some point, now they need to go from having all of their net worth tied up in this piece of land, and now they need to transition that land to a second generation, and they need to find some way to generate $100,000 in after-tax cash flow, and the portfolio recommendation needs to change. We also have clients for whom you know, they're you know 85 years old, they're 100% equity, and they're living off the dividend. And you know, I look at it and I go, you can't make the proper investment recommendation. And I'll take it a step further. You can't do a proper review meeting unless you understand what the money is intended to do. And I see every day we see portfolios that bear no resemblance to what the money is intended to do for people. And it's because somebody's like, oh, hey, I'm an investment guy, or I have a product, or I have guy get great returns. The, The focus is investment first, and the intention of the money is not even considered. And so to us, the power, and I think it comes from being founded and being owned by planners going, serve the plan, make the plan come true in the most highly probable manner and give me the information to conduct a proper review meeting in the context of the objectives. Excellent. Thank you for driving this point home. Let's move to a different topic a little bit right now. I want to ask a question about you know what, what really made you successful in, in, I wouldn't say running a practice because this is a business. This is, you know, you have 50 plus stuff at this point. This is not a small practice. What really made you successful in growing and building this business over the last 10, 15 years? So the first thing is a belief that people need what you do. And to me, that's the foundation of any successful business. You have to believe that people need what you do and you have to have you know absolute focus on delivering on that promise. So why have we been successful? We think that there's a lot of Canadians that deserve better advice than they are currently getting. And we're not afraid to go out there and say that. There's a fearlessness that, that is required to grow a business. Number one, a fearlessness in terms of asking clients if they're happy with their current advisor, asking them if they think there's ways in which their circumstances could be improved, offering a second opinion. There's a fearlessness that's required to grow a business. The second thing is, if you want to grow a business, then you need to write down the goal. And I'm shocked at how you work with financial advisors that do plans for clients and say, it's critical you have a written plan to achieve your goals. If they're not written down and clearly defined, they won't happen. Then they say, they go, how do I grow my practice? And I said, do you have a written plan on how you're going to grow your practice? (laughs) No. (laughs) Well, let me tell you, I have a goal, write it down, and it forces you to think about what has to happen in order to achieve that goal. So our firm, 15 years ago, Jim said, we have to double the firm every five years. Well, that's a very significant growth rate, 15% compounded annually. So that forces you to say, what has to happen in order for us to grow at 15% a year? Systems, people, marketing, client service, software, everything. It forces you, when you say our goal is to grow at 15%, it forces you to go, what has to happen? So that's the second thing. The third thing is you need a scorecard. So it's you write down the goal and you go, okay, this year, here's our target for new clients. Here's our target for new assets. And here's the action plan. And that has to be right front and center for every employee so that people know immediately when we're off track. Oh, we're, we had a bad month. What happened? We didn't get new clients or we didn't get big enough clients or clients left. What happened? And so it, without the scorecard, you have no means to be able to say, okay, we did all the actions. We executed the marketing plan. We executed the client service plan and we fell short. Well, obviously, 
obviously we're missing something. Or, you know, we got unbelievable results and we didn't execute the plan. Hmm, maybe some of those things we're doing aren't that important. So that's the third thing is the scorecard. I would say that the the fourth thing is you got to have great people. And, and this is the fearlessness part. So I will say, in my experience, growth is stressful. And anybody that thinks otherwise, you know, uh, they're misleading themselves. Growth is stressful. What works when you have five staff does not work when you have 25 staff. What works when you have 100 clients does not work when you have 1,000 clients. The system breaks and people get burned out and they get exhausted and they get stressed out. And you have to have people that are motivated by adversity where things go wrong and they go, I got to fix it. I got to buckle down. I got to be better next time. And that go, geez, I'm not going to, you know, in summer, we're not going to coast. In summer, we're going to use that time to update, upgrade our systems, to focus on our CRM and hardwiring client service standards into the system. Not people that fear change, not people that take that adversity and are stressed out by it. You have to know going in, if you're going to double the size of your firm every five years, it's going to break. You're going to have to work harder than your company. And there's going to be some really tough days. And, you know, one of the hardest things is when, you know, I will even say this, I, I've had this experience now multiple times where it's like, you know, you're, you're going to a car crash. You know, you've hired young people, you've given them responsibility. You know that they're not prepared fully for that responsibility and you're going to lose a client or you somebody's going to be upset. You have to fight through that anyway. And it's that most people find that very difficult to, they like to be in control, especially planners. You like to be in control. You like the details. You like to make sure that everything's looked after. And it's a very unsettling feeling to turn a relationship over to somebody that may not be prepared. But I've kind of taken the view, my wife and I have four children, and this is where the personal side sort of, you know, enters into the professional side. We had our second child was born with some material special needs, mental, physical challenges. And we ended up in the hospital. She was three weeks old. And this might be a hilarious story. And I apologize if it feels like I'm throwing uh, uh, some doctors under the bus. That's not my intention here. But I'll never forget it. So she was having seizures. And so she needed an MRI. And so that's a big magnet, magnetic resonance imaging. Right. And so they can't have any metal in the room because metal becomes a, you know, a very dangerous object around a giant magnet. So they've developed processes because it's a teaching hospital. And so they have developed checklists. And so we have an intern who obviously is a highly intelligent human being because they're in med school. So they're probably more intelligent than me, you, maybe most of the population. And they asked a three-week-old baby whether or not she had ever worked in a welding shop. <laughs> oh, my God. Then they asked whether or not she had ever been in a knife fight. Yeah. And so my wife, who is in extreme duress at this point because of the situation that she's in, actually burst out laughing. And uh, it was a bit of comedic relief. And so my point in all this is, you know, we accept in our medical system that, you know, you have to build checks and balances. But at the end of the day, there's only one way to become a surgeon. And that's to actually have to practice. And you practice on cadavers and then ultimately 
ultimately you got to practice on people. Things go wrong and that's the only way the system continues on. And I look at it and I say, we're a bit of a teaching hospital. We want systems, we want standards, we want processes and procedures. But ultimately, if you're going to grow, you need to bring in really intelligent people. You need to give them responsibility and you need to trust that if they make mistakes, they'll own up to the mistakes, they'll learn from the mistakes, and they'll be better because of it. And, you know, we have some very, very strong client relationships that I look at it, and those clients, they've made us a far better firm. They have stuck with us, they have pushed us to be better, and all they want to see is that when you make mistakes, you own up to them, you work your butt off to get better. So anyway, the long-winded answer to the question is about growth. How do you grow? You got to be fearless. You have to have goals. You have to write them down. You have to have a scorecard to measure against it. And you got to have people that embrace that adversity and are motivated by it. This is excellent, Greg. I have probably another five or 10 questions. We could probably be talking for another hour or so, but this is really interesting approach, how you think about your business and you know, just uh, quote unquote, the st- teaching hospital. But really that shows me that you're ready for, you really have to take a realistic, hard look at the business you treat the goals that you set very seriously, and you have system in place to build, uh, for example, the scorecards to actually guide you and say, are we on track? If we're not on track, what needs to change? What, what kind of people? Who do we need on the team, right? So this is, this is fascinating. I think there's a lot of value for a lot of advisors here. I'm going to just ask one quick follow-up question to that one, because, and especially, a, you know, a couple of maybe tips, or one tip, actually. Let's make it one tip for new advisors joining the industry. If you were a new advisor, for example, joining today, how would you start in this industry today? It's very different than it was even 10 years ago. How would you start over today? Holy smokes. <laughs> Honestly, like it is uh, it is so difficult for a new person to get into this industry. You know, when you look on the small end of the scale, you know, selling term insurance, you know, to 25, 30 year olds, you know, that you're never going to be able to pay the bills. You know, when you look at the competition, the bank branches all have people that'll do a plan, they'll sell you a mutual fund. Then you have the robo platforms online. You know, it's getting harder and harder and harder to have a practice based on, you know, young clients or people that don't have, you know, $500,000 plus. It's getting harder and harder. The compliance costs uh, have gone up at the time and energy. So to be a young person, you know, my advice would be, I would highly encourage you try and find a senior advisor that doesn't have a succession plan and that shares your beliefs and try and bridge that gap. Because what I see is a whole, there's a whole bunch of older advisors out there that don't have a succession plan. There's multiple reasons for it, right? You know, they may not be able to afford the cash flow of a junior advisor. They may not have the time or energy to go out and try and, you know, hire a, a staffing company or put out jobs, postings and try and, you know, that's not what a senior advisor wants to spend their time doing. So there's all kinds of reasons why they don't properly plan succession or have difficulty finding the right successor. I think that the real opportunity for somebody looking to get into the business is to basically put together a value proposition of how you're going to help this older advisor free up their time, make more money by focusing on their larger clients and have more time to go to the lake. 
while you do the grunt work and help the practice improve. And see, the only reason, the only way to free up that extra cash flow to actually pay that junior advisor is to help the older advisor grow. So that's my only advice I would have there. And I think there's some wonderful, wonderful advisors out there that are looking for a successor. It's just hard to find them. Excellent. Wow, this is great and very practical. Really, practical approach really gave a recipe for somebody who was thinking into getting the industry, how they should be thinking about even approaching an older advisor. So that's fantastic. I guess on the, the other way you could do it would be to go to one of the banks and look at it as, you know, I'm going to go there and I'm going to get trained and I'm going to get, you know, my designation and I'm going to learn how to do plans. I'm going to build some relationships. I'm going to get some experience and, you know, look at that as, you know, a stepping stone where either you quickly move up the ranks at the bank or you gather the experience that you think you need to go out on your own. And now you've got, you know, a more credibility, maybe uh, uh, maybe even some client relationships that follow you. That would be the other the other avenue. Excellent. Thank you for adding that. So a couple of other questions here before we wrap up, Rick. So I know you have a lot of projects going on right now in your business, but what are some of the projects maybe that you're more, most excited in your business right now over next, I don't know, six, 12 months? What excites you specifically? So the biggest thing for us is really becoming experts at offering a second opinion. And uh, I'll say it this way. Every client that an advisor would want, every ideal client in Canada already has an advisor. So if you're going to grow, you have to have some way to get their attention and say, hey, you know, there might be some things that you're missing or you might not be getting the level of service or the results that you deserve. And being able to offer a second opinion in a manner where the client can't say no. So when we think about it, you know, even some of the wealthiest Canadians, all of their affairs are not in order. The, the will hasn't been updated or the insurance is excessive or their investment portfolio doesn't look anything like what it's supposed to. Or nobody's taking an interest in their kids or their spouse who ultimately will have the money after they're gone. Whatever the reason is, even some of the wealthiest Canadians are not getting the absolute best possible advice. And so what I'm excited about is developing that second opinion where you can say to anybody, you know, one of two things is going to happen. Either we are going to confirm that you are getting outstanding financial advice and all your affairs are in order, in which case sleep well at night, or we're going to identify specific action items to improve your financial affairs, in which case we will give you a clear recommendation and we would hope that you would use us to implement it. We are getting better and better at being able to offer that second opinion, follow up in a timely manner, deliver it in a very professional way. And we're also starting to host events across Canada, specifically targeting business owners who are going to be transitioning their business over the next 10 years and talking about all the issues associated with that and really trying to position ourselves as experts in that because it's a huge, huge opportunity. And in fact, you know, some of the interesting learnings we've had are that some very wealthy people actually don't really have any real advisor because all of their net worth is tied up in the business. It might be land, buildings, equipment, inventory, and they might be worth $20 million, but they have an investment account of 200000 in an RRSP at the bank. Nobody knows that they are exceedingly wealthy. And at some point, somebody needs to help them value that business, sell it, get the highest after-tax proceeds available. Somebody then needs to take that net worth, turn it into financial assets that generate a very sustainable tax-efficient income stream. And they don't know how the business owner doesn't know how to do that. Their accountant has never done that. 
and they need another advice provider to step in and fill that void. So the things that get me excited are, again, just, I would say, growing our company in a manner that's consistent with the mission of helping more people build their wealth. That's what gets me excited. Awesome. That's great. You mentioned uh, earlier on that you know wealthy Canadians may have already an advisor, right? And you want to be an expert of providing second opinion. And then I'm glad you added later on that there are also people, for example, business owners thinking about succession, let's say, their own business, completely outside of financial planning, outside of wealth management and financial services industry. And they they may need a financial advisor. They may be dealing with insurance advisor, for example, right? Or they may be deal, dealing with you know a specialist in a very narrow area of financial planning, maybe even fee-for-service planners. But there is nobody who is really helping them really at the broad spectrum of the wealth management. And, and I think there's still enormous opportunity, especially here in Canada, for identifying and finding those people and having a value proposition and helping them really with wealth. You don't necessarily need to grow at a cost of other advisors. I mean, if other advisors are not very good or they're doing something even outright damaging, sure, you can provide second opinion and name you at some point you will take those clients. Great, right? Because Canadians deserve better uh, better advice. But I think there is a really big chunk of the population, especially right now. From our perspective, I always come up with the or cite the number 13.6 million Canadians, 50 years and older as of 2016 based on Stats Canada. So 37% of Canadian population are 50 years and older. That's why we really focused on uh, asset decumulation and, and really retirement planning, massive opportunity. A lot of those people don't have an advisor. And I think this is a really massive opportunity. And if you are, if you truly decide to be great and want to be a great advisor, there is plenty of opportunity for you, right? No question. <laughs> it's incredible, the opportunity out there right now. Excellent. Okay, Greg, this podcast is all about growing your practice. Do you have any parting words of wisdom for the listeners? Let's focus on just one thing. So number one, I think the winning value proposition is, and it's a broken record, but it is a combination of a clearly full written financial plan with an investment recommendation designed to make that plan come true. That's the winning value proposition. I think it's financial planning and investment management working hand in glove to make those projections come. Of course, I think that you know personal service is very important and that, that commitment to ongoing excellence, all those things. But the parting word of wisdom is everybody you want as a client typically already has an advisor. Somebody, it could be, as you pointed out, could be just somebody that does insurance, could be their accountant, it could be a broker, I don't know. But very few Canadians are getting the full picture and getting all of it put together. And when I talk to high net worth clients, that's what they want. They want somebody to make it simple. They want somebody to help tie it all together. And they want somebody to bring meaning to their life's work. That's the parting words of wisdom. The opportunity is immense for you if you stay focused on that. I, I guess the only other thing would be, it's very challenging to do that by yourself. And I think the days of you know these independent people you know, in a strip mall, they work by themselves and they do everything from insurance and group benefits and tax and investments. You know, in my opinion, that's going forward, that's very challenging. I think that working as part of a team and whether that's, you know, formalized in terms of a partnership and you got, you know, five advisors and staff working together, or whether that's just an informal network of an accountant and a lawyer.
employer and a CFP or a portfolio manager, whether it's informal or formal, I think it's going to be very challenging to compete in that high net worth space just off out as the, the ball trades. You need a team behind you to, to do the second opinion, to do the plans, to keep clients informed. And we have seen the benefits of that, of, of various experts working together on client files. We've seen we get bigger clients and we've seen we get more referrals and we've seen that actually we have more time to add value to the client because we're more focused. Makes absolute sense. Greg, if anyone wants to get a hold of you, how would they do that? What's the best way to reach you? Well, at Value Partners Investments. So if you go to our website, my contact information is there, but my phone number is area code 204-949-0059. My email address is g-f-i-l-m-o-n at vpinvestments.ca. So feel free to reach out. I have no idea how many people are out there that are interested in contacting me, but I will do my best to respond in a timely manner to anybody that does reach out. And the only other thing I would like to say is just anything that I have to say, these are not, you know, my own personal learnings and experiences that have just, you know, come to me. I have been incredibly fortunate to learn from some phenomenal advisors across Canada. I have, you know, the good fortune of working with some incredibly committed and intelligent people every day here at Value Partners. And anything that I say is really sort of a collection of our experiences as a team over the last 15 years. Wonderful. Greg, thank you very much for coming on the show. I really enjoyed the conversation. And thank you very much for also being open to address uh, any questions of anybody who wants to hear maybe or clarify some of the some of the things that you said. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Have a wonderful day. Thank you. That's it for this episode, but I'd like to ask you a question if you're still listening. Did you enjoy this episode with Greg? Are you enjoying the show? Are you getting value from it? I'm asking because it's been over a year since we've launched and we're looking to make some changes going forward. So if you could let me know, that would be very helpful. And frankly speaking, if you want us to continue with the show, I'd like to know too. So send me an email at podcast at snapprojections.com. Don't wait, do it right away, really as soon as you reach your desk before something else catches your attention. Again, the email is podcast at snapprojections.com. Thanks so much. Talk to you soon.